Before we dive in, just a quick note that this conversation is made possible by the smart, passionate, and creative folks at TargetX. TargetX is a higher education software company on a mission to transform the way colleges and universities support their prospects, students, and alumni. Each day, the team works harder to become the market's premier solutions for student lifecycle management, from inquiry all the way through graduation and beyond. Learn more about how TargetX is helping schools increase retention rates by downloading their new ebook at www.targetx.com forward slash enrollify. Again, that's targetx.com slash enrollify. Hello and welcome to the Enrollify podcast. Each week, the Enrollify podcast equips you with insights into how the latest trends in marketing and technology are impacting today's enrollment marketers. Every episode is designed to inspire new, creative ideas for how to optimize the resources you have to generate the results that you need. My name is Zach Buzicruz, and I am the host of today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Enrollified Podcast. My name is Zach Buzicruz and I am the host of today's episode. And today I have the privilege of speaking with Brandon Busteed, who is the president of Kaplan University Partners. Brandon worked for many years as a partner at Gallup and the executive director of education and workforce development there. He's also a very prolific writer, and his work has been featured in a number of publications, including Forbes, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, The Washington Post, just to name a few. Uh, Welcome to the show, Brandon. Yeah, thanks, Zach. Pleasure to be with you, and happy Friday. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Glad to be talking to you on a Friday with the understanding that at 5 p.m. we get to celebrate with a, with a little bit of a, a happy hour. So a good way to close out the week. Exactly. Definitely. Well, uh, yeah, looking forward to our conversation. Great. So, Brandon, you've had quite the tenure in education as an entrepreneur, a speaker, a writer, and I understand now as a university trustee. And I'd love for you to just give our listeners a sort of kind of cliff notes overview of your career to date. Well, first of all, I've had I've had a blast. I've been able to be in the education space in some form for my entire career and, you know, heading into college and at the point of leaving high school, I don't think I would have ever predicted that uh, but but of course that's uh, that's how it's been and and it started with uh, things that I got involved with as a student leader when I was an undergrad at Duke University got very involved in uh, things like planning alternative events that uh, didn't involve alcohol that kind of happened as a result of being a, a class president where we were given funds by the university to build class unity and of course that didn't involve uh, paying for alcohol so we had to come up with some alternatives that were actually attractive enough for students to to attend without alcohol being a part. A real challenge that, at the collegiate level there. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and it, it sounds like a rather simple step into this, but I, I really started to look at that issue through the lens of the, the blown opportunity that a lot of students, uh, you know, had in going to higher ed and then, you know, literally uh, for too many of them, drinking themselves through college, you know, as opposed to a four-year preparation for the real world. They, there were a lot who were treating it as a you know four year vacation from the real world, and I got interested in that as a public policy major, uh, as a student who was very interested in you know thinking about public policy and public health. Uh, anyway, it led to my first company. You know, months after I graduated as undergrad, I started a company called Outside the Classroom. Did online courses around 
things like alcohol abuse prevention, sexual assault prevention, uh, built that company over about a 12-year period. And it was acquired by Everfi, uh, which many people may know now, a rather large company that's doing a lot of work in that space, not just in higher ed, but K-12 and into the workplace. And from there, I had an opportunity to, to help Gallup launch and build a, an education and workforce development practice. And so that, you know, was a whole different angle. So I kind of went from looking at this, you know, very specific issue that was a very intractable issue on college campuses, the issue of binge drinking, and looking at it through the lens of something that was uh, preventing higher education from, you know, fulfilling its, uh, its mission from the institutional side of things, but also students you know, literally pissing away uh, this this precious opportunity called college. Hmm. And then, of course, when I got to Gallup, we we were able to, you know, uh, work on studies that covered the gamut of almost everything you can imagine from, you know, how Americans view higher ed to surveys of provosts and trustees and presidents and chief academic officers, everybody inside the academy and outside the academy. And so, the, you know, the studies I was involved with there just gave me this an enormous perspective on kind of the whole, you know, uh, world of education, workforce development. And then the last year and a half, I've, I've just had a, uh, an, an incredible time at, at Kaplan, you know, really transitioning from, you know, the work I loved at Gallup over the seven years I was there uh, doing research and essentially light consulting and advising with college presidents and leaders. And now I'm, I'm at an organization where as a, as a global, you know, massively diversified education organization, I can actually help universities build this future now, right? So I'm shifting from being involved in research and uh, some consulting work to now, you know, being, you know, so so to speak, on the ground, helping universities build the future of higher ed. But I think if you want to summarize those those fairly, you know, distinct experiences, it's all been in the vein of, I believe, deeply in the magic of higher education. You know, when that magic happens, it doesn't happen for everybody. We still have a lot of work to do. Uh, but, you know, outside the classroom was preventing, you know, students from, you know, harming themselves from from excessive drinking. And the time at Gallup was really trying to understand, uh, you know, what what the headwinds are around higher ed, how we can improve the the ROI of higher ed, measure the outcomes and value of higher ed. And now I'm in a you know role where I can help institutions really, you know, adapt and grow and thrive in very interesting ways. Fantastic. I really appreciate that that context. And I'm curious, I, I want to talk about the the impact these various roles that you've held over the years has actually had on uh, sort of the lens through which you see both the problems and also the opportunities that exist in education today. Uh, in other words, how has your perspective uh, or has your perspective around the role that education should play in society changed as you've sort of transitioned from entrepreneur or even first student to entrepreneur to researcher to the work that you're doing now? It's a great question. I don't know that my fundamental view of higher education has changed. I've certainly seen it from many different angles. And anytime you can look at something from different angles, it it certainly, you know, informs you, gives you a different perspective. You know, at the heart, it goes back to, you know, what I just said, which is higher education is one of our country's most important assets. Uh, it doesn't mean, however, that it's working perfectly and that it couldn't be better. And I think what what I've learned over the time that I've been in higher ed and that, you know, that career now spans about 20 years is that uh, the headwinds uh, facing higher ed are probably stronger uh, and a little scarier than most people realize right now. 
Uh, and in addition to uh, to get, you know, to get ourselves to a place where higher education is in a healthier spot, we're going to have to do things we haven't done before or at least haven't been very comfortable with. Right. And that runs the gamut from making faster decisions, uh, making some difficult choices, bold choices, dare I say, um, you know, things that, that most institutions, uh, you know, haven't really had to do. We're, we're in we're in kind of a different zone now. Right. So I think the the, the you know the existential crisis is now real i wouldn't have said that 20 years ago and i really wouldn't have said that 10 years ago although there were started some of those signals starting to come you know now i really believe that uh higher education certainly needs to do a lot to be more um customer friendly that's not a very uh, uh you know popular word in higher ed but we have customers we have students we have parents we have employers we have taxpayers those are those are customers and higher education has to very quickly start to move in ways where it's much more customer responsive, customer friendly um, and uh, and and also to make sure that it's uh, relevant and relevant is really around the vein of work readiness. So I would say, you know, a perspective I didn't have 20 years ago when I was you know trying to address the binge drinking issue as a problem facing higher education. You know, now uh, what I would say is the biggest issue by far that we have to fix is the the critique that college graduates are not work ready when they graduate and yet that's the number one reason why americans value higher education is to get a good job so if we're falling down on delivering on uh that thing that people look to as its greatest promise we've got a real fundamental value proposition issue and so that i would say that's my answer is that you know that that perspective i have now is an evolved one uh it wasn't one i had 20 years ago and I probably would have only been hinting at that maybe 10 years ago. Sure. And, you know, I'm curious, would you just break down, I think we could we could guess um, about what exactly this sort of existential crisis that you referenced uh, is in reference to, but could you just break down in, in your own words, maybe a couple, uh, two or three bullet points about what you think kind of the greatest challenges facing higher education is today? Well, Look, let's start with cost. Cost is on the minds of every prospective college student these days, and for good reason. Higher ed tuition has gone up 393% since 1990. Uh, we're now at $1.6 trillion in total student loan debt. Uh, at the same time, since 1990, the average, uh, the, the, the median wages of bachelor's degrees have been flat, right? So, so median wages of bachelor's degree holders flat since 1990, while uh, tuition has gone up 393%. We've got $1.6 trillion of student loan debt. That's a major issue. Then you couple that with the fact that uh, no one believes that college graduates are work ready. When I say no one, that's the general population, that's C-level business executives, that's even the trustees of colleges and universities. And you realize that, uh, you know, that that being, the, you know, one of the major value propositions that people are seeking higher education for we have to fix that. So, you know, you compound concerns about cost with concerns about the actual return on that investment and the value proposition of being prepared for careers uh, and meaningful lives. Right. And that's a real challenge. When you look at some of the metrics that deliver on those promises, uh, they, the good news is we know where some of this magic is. It's students who say they had a job or internship during college where they applied what they were learning in the classroom. It's you know, saying they worked on a long-term project that took a semester or more to complete. We'll just use those two examples, Zach. 
less than a third of college graduates hit the mark on those two. Yeah. If they do, it doubles the odds that they're engaged in their work later, but only a third hit the mark. And I'm talking about a data set that looked only at graduates. So that means two thirds of those who left with a diploma didn't hit the mark on those two critical experiences. So this isn't just a perception gap. There's a reality here that, you know, has a lot of catching up to do as well. So just kind of following that same vein, then what do you think the responsibility of the university in 2020, the college or university in 2020 has to build really, really meaningful and intentional relationships with with businesses, quite frankly, to help better ensure that uh, students can get access to internships, students can quickly get access to things like summer jobs or or jobs immediately post-graduation. Do you think there's any uh, growing responsibility that the university, the, really the leadership at the university, has to ensure that there are solid relationships with, for lack of a better term, kind of corporate partners? Well, it's 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 all employers. So, you know, fo- focus beyond just those who are, are corporations. I mean, you've got government employers, you've got nonprofit employers, you've got for profit employers, it's employers writ large. And the onus isn't just on the institution, higher ed institutions, you know, employers have a major, major stake in this, too. You say, what's the number one thing that employers are looking for in a college graduate? It's a graduate who had a job or internship during college. And so, okay, there you go. There's the magic. What's the number one thing they're looking for? And then you say, okay, employers, well, how do you think they they get that, right? You have to help in providing more internship opportunities, right? So this criticism from employers of higher ed comes full circle back to the employers. That said, they they both have a, a, a stake in this. You know, universities definitely need to build more outreach programs to build partnerships with employers. I'll give you an example. I was a startup at Outside the Classroom. We were a startup of 12 employees based in the Boston area. I didn't go seek out Northeastern for co-op students. Somebody from their co-op office called me and said, hey, we'd like to talk to you about the co-op program. And I was like, OK, great. Uh, they came. They told me about the program. And uh, that ended up being uh, a relationship that I had over 11 years where I had 17 co-op students from Northeastern. That was a simple 30-minute meeting, right? So there was an example where the university reached out to me as an employer. I still had to participate in providing those opportunities. And then at the end of the day, there's also onus that falls on the student and uh, their parent or guardian, right? Because if a student doesn't appreciate how valuable it is to have an internship experience, right, then you could easily graduate without having one. And you're like, hey, I did everything I was asked to. You know, here I am ready to hit the world and be successful. And the reality is you've had no work experience, right? You've had no real understanding of what that's like, no real application for some of the things you've learned. So in other words, you've got you've got several stakeholders. You've got the student, the students uh, themselves have to understand how important these aspects are and uh, and take advantage of it for themselves. The higher ed institutions certainly need to do more to make sure that this is a standard part of the college experience as opposed to optional. So, for example, I have a lot of universities who say, oh, yeah, we do internship programs. And then I hit them with a really simple question. What percentage of your students are graduating with an internship? And how were you able to determine whether it was connected to what they were doing in the classroom? And that's where almost all of them fail miserably Hmm. to either give me any kind of data or any kind of strong answer. It usually ends up being, well, it happens for the students in this one program here, right? But it's not something that's happening writ large, with the exception of, you know, a couple institutions that have, you know, invested in co-op models like Drexel, like Northeastern. Um, but, you know, the point is, those are great examples. You can do this in higher ed. You can create a model 
a pedagogical model and a programmatic model where 100% of the students leave your institution with some form of a valuable work experience. So this is totally doable, but there's several stakeholders involved as, uh, you know, as I've kind of, uh, you know, described here. Sure. And, you know, this brings up a kind of a nice segue into my next question. We're talking about here, you know, the friction that kind of exists between employers and, and universities, friction that might exist between students and universities, students and employers. This this idea around kind of reducing friction has become something of a, of a buzzword in sort of the marketing sales and user experience arenas, uh, particularly over the past year or so. In late November, you wrote an op-ed for Forbes on predictions for what you called the near future of higher education. Um, at least three of your 10 predictions seem to suggest that colleges and universities will you know, essentially need to aggressively do everything they can to eliminate friction in really the student's journey towards enrollment, uh, you know, towards enrollment at the institution in order to truly stay competitive. And you know, three of these uh, predictions that really stood out to me were this idea that you said, number one, experiential marketing in the form of short summer and maybe, you know, online courses for high school students will become really the dominant strategy for enrollment management. The second kind of prediction here that you that you addressed was that admissions decisions will be made in 24 to 48 hours. And then finally, employers will become a new breed of a new breed for um, uh, a creditor, a, a new accreditor of sorts for higher education. So I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about um, how you see these particular, um, um, you know, kind of predictions, um, how you think that this reduces friction in the overall student experience and what you think, you know, whether whether you think kind of my thesis here that it's in, in order to stay truly competitive, especially if you're a, a smaller liberal arts college, you're going to have to aggressively make it Fisher Price, so to speak, to inquire, to apply and ultimately enroll in, in a university today. Well, using the word frictionless, you know, frictionless is about being customer centric. You know, you think about what Amazon has done. I mean, they have uh, absolutely rapidly focused on the customer experience and they have built what now is the most valuable company on the planet. Uh, but it's been their obsession around customer centricity that's really gotten them there. That's why we can order something, uh, you know, this morning at 10 a.m. And literally somebody will deliver it to my doorstep by by 4 p.m., if not sooner. Um, so, you know, what higher ed needs to do, which I mentioned earlier, is is really aggressively adopt a customer centric stance. And if you say what do customers want, you start to get some really clear answers, which is where these you know predictions come from, you know, from the perspective of uh, experiential marketing. A lot of companies, services and products alike have realized that if you can give people an experience with your product or service, they're much more likely to buy it. They're much more likely to be long term customers. And so when you think about what's the form of experiential marketing for higher ed, it's, uh, you know, there's, there's been examples of this for a long time. Somebody comes to your campus for a summer program, an academic enrichment summer program when they're in middle school or high school. That would be an example of experiential marketing. If I come and do a tour on campus, maybe while I'm there, I get to meet with a faculty member and a current student, which is something that Lynn University does in their redesigned student tour. Think about that experiential marketing. Not only am I doing a walking tour, looking at the buildings, but I'm actually going to meet a faculty member and a current student at Lynn University. And, um, and one of the ways that Kaplan is playing a role in this is we're helping universities launch online 
programs that are highly immersive for students at the high school level so that they can experience some of the top academic, uh, you know, faculty members at those institutions, right, have a flavor for the kinds of things that they might want to study or major in. It also gives them a sense for what they, you know, might want to do for a career, right, but pulling that forward, right, going further upstream, as I would call it, and making sure it's not just a marketing brochure, but a real experience with the value proposition of the institution. Any way that a college or university can do that, they're going to increasingly win in the market. And then you say, okay, admissions decisions, you know, uh, by the way, for international student recruitment, which is a, a, a business that Kaplan has been in for a long time, uh, it's already an expectation yeah. that admissions yeah. decisions are made in uh, a handful of business days. And so you say, well, if that's already the expectation in the international student market, how long before it becomes an expectation in the domestic market? You think about one of the things that people hate about college is you got to put in all these applications. It takes, you know, a couple months before you hear back. Uh, and oh, by the way, there's great data that the first institution you hear from, you're most likely to yield at. Right. Hmm. So in other words, the first universities say, hey, you know, Zach, welcome aboard. You know, you've been accepted into the class of blah, blah, blah. The more likely you are to uh, to actually attend that institution. So, you know, this makes the friction of applying for college much less for families. It takes out, uh, you know, some amount of the anxiety they go through. There's less waiting. There's less, you know, uh, of a process in it. And and really, if if universities think about it, they're they're all they all have standard criteria for how they evaluate applicants. You know, they know minimum GPAs and test scores, and they have other formula. So as you see an increase in AI driven and machine learning type reviews of these things, or just by the way, having, I know this doesn't sound crazy to a lot of folks, but you got overnight staff in the admissions office so that you're literally able to process these uh, applications 24 seven. You know, these are moves that you are going to see institutions make. And once a couple of them start to do it, it's gonna be really hard to compete sure. without following those leaders. Sure, sure, no, that makes a ton of sense. We'll jump right back into the conversation after a quick message from this episode's sponsor. In higher ed, we talk a lot about the massive disruption happening in terms of how prospective students research, evaluate, and ultimately buy education today. We talk less about the disruption happening on the retention side of things though. Here's the reality. Dozens of software companies over the last decade have claimed to be the solution to our nation's retention problem. And yet we still can't get graduation rates above 60%. Well, I don't believe that software alone can solve this crisis, there is one company that's decided to put student graduation and graduate success at the core of their mission. And that company is TargetX. With TargetX, you are not simply buying software. You are empowering yourself and your team to take advantage of two decades worth of higher ed experience. Their staff has 90% former higher ed employees who are 100% focused on your success. This means that the folks who work on building these tools actually understand the unique nuances and challenges that exist in enrollment management and in student services. In a world increasingly saturated with higher ed software, it's important that you select a provider who will take the time to understand your context and then empower you with solutions to thrive in that context. And TargetX is committed to just that. Learn more about TargetX's solutions for full student lifecycle management at targetx.com or download their latest ebook on student retention at targetx.com forward slash enrollify. 
the the kind of last point here concerning your you know three of these sort of uh, near future uh, um, future realities for higher education that you address in your article is this idea that um, you know the role that employers will really play in uh, accrediting being an accreditor of sorts for higher education. Can you speak to that a little bit and and flesh out a little bit more about uh, what that specifically means? Yeah, I think one of the biggest growth opportunities for higher ed is to become more relevant to employers as a partner to employers. And there's a lot of different ways this is happening. You know, you've seen over the last couple of years a massive education as a benefits movement, as it's been called, led by companies like Guild, who uh, are working with massive uh, Fortune 500 companies, uh, partner universities, and helping those companies build education's benefit programs where employees will be able to get their college degree as a result of working at those companies. That is a very real movement. Uh, it's growing rapidly. And then there's all kinds of other examples short of college degrees as a benefit where uh, higher ed can take, as long as it's open to non-degree education, there is a ton of growth. In fact, I think there's going to be more growth in non-degree education than degree education in the U.S. for U.S. higher ed. What do I mean by non-degree education? Pieces of degrees, certificates, industry-recognized credentials uh, provided through a university, right? Not a business that many of them have been in. Uh, but you know, I'll give you an example. Some of the projects we've worked on, we've helped an employer uh, get some of their employees through the CISSP. It's one of the really rigorous cybersecurity standards. And what we did is we took pieces of a cybersecurity uh, bachelor's degree condensed it into a 12-week program and uh, doubled the pass rate of their employees going through the CISSP. That is a huge win for everybody, right? The higher ed institution had designed their programs. This was Purdue Global in one-week, one-credit courses. They were able to take pieces of the bachelor's degree, uh, which, which this company was not looking for, right? They were looking for a very specific thing. They didn't need them to get a bachelor's degree. They needed them to get through the CISSP. And so those employees were able to get through the CISSP quicker, higher rates, pass rates, get into higher paying jobs as a result of it, right? So the employer wins, the university wins, the individual student uh, employee in the middle wins. And those are examples where as long as you're open to non-degree education, there's an incredible amount of growth for higher ed. But back to this point of employers will increasingly be seen as accreditors of sorts is that if that company says, yes, that 12-week program is exactly what I need, they will invest in that program, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and it gets them to their goal, right? But if they validate that, that's worth something, right? So even though it's not a degree, that's an employer validating a form of education that they say is valuable to them, it's valuable to their employee, and that's essentially another form of becoming an accreditor. So, you know, I think there's going to be opportunities for universities to win big in these employer partnerships. Employers still need a lot of help with their talent development, upskilling, reskilling initiatives. But you've got to be an institution that's nimble and willing to think about how you might teach or educate in ways short of a degree. I'll give you one last example of something I wrote about this week in Forbes is I think there's an opportunity for the liberal arts to go on offense here. You know, it's been on defense for a while because people have been critical of, you know, liberal arts, you know, how, how does that lead to a good job, blah, blah, blah. Well, we know what every employer wants are things like critical thinking, skilled communication, collaboration. Just don't use the words liberal arts. Um, but the idea here is why couldn't you package liberal arts courses? And the example I gave was a course I took on leadership that was framed around Shakespeare, 
you know, that that, for example, would be an incredibly valuable course in corporate America. But, you know, we we aren't thinking about, wow, we could take the liberal arts in pieces into corporate America. But that's exactly the kind of thing that uh, there, there are going to be opportunities for. I love it. That's that's fantastic. And, you know, it kind of uh, reminds me of this this term that I've uh, read um, and that, that I've seen you use in, in several of your articles. And this is this uh, this term that you've coined called credigree. And from my limited understanding, um, it seems as if a credigree is uh, this this uh, both a traditional degree, both a traditional bachelor's degree and some sort of industry recognized skill or credential. And I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about the survey that University Partners and Quest Research conducted, I believe it was at the end of last year, and what it revealed about the value of credigrees and the opportunity, um, especially as it pertains to employers for hiring students with, uh, so to speak, credigrees. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the word and the idea is a fairly simple one. It's a blend of the word credential and degree, hence credigree. And the idea is that students who would be uh, pursuing their bachelor's degree uh, as part of their four-year college experience would also leave with an industry-recognized credential. Uh, not a badge, not a certificate, an industry-recognized credential. And, you know, look, this is not a foreign concept in that we've always had majors or double majors or a major and a minor. Well, instead of a major and a minor, Students can leave with a bachelor's degree, their major, and an industry-recognized credential. And in the research we did, we had a simple question about, imagine hiring uh, a recent college graduate, knowing nothing else, which of the following three would you hire? And the first option was a graduate with a bachelor's degree in English. The second was a bachelor's degree in cybersecurity. Obviously, if you just compared those head-to-head, the cybersecurity degree would win because that's a, a hot field right now. But the third option was an English major with a certified ethical hacker designation, which is a cybersecurity designation. Well, uh, that one won by 4X over wow. the other options. That's incredible. So you said, well, wait a minute, cybersecurity degree beats an English degree, but then the English degree with a cybersecurity designation blows away the other two. And that's an example of a credit degree, right? You, you, you know, think about it as an employer, you're looking at a graduate and they got, they're an English major, Okay, that's interesting. With a certified ethical hacker, whoa! <laughs> so now all of a sudden, you know, you've increased for that graduate their competitiveness in the marketplace, you know, their attractiveness to an employer. And in our market research, uh, we know even ahead of that that prospective parents and students of colleges right now, traditional age students, not not the adult market, traditional age students uh, find it very attractive because they're thinking about making sure that if they go to college, when they go to college that they are career ready, right? That they're work ready when they leave. And that's one of the very straightforward examples for how institutions can do that. And the institutions we're working with to help that, you know, they're being very creative in how these things are taking place. So one institution is gonna have students do their industry recognized credential training during their J term. You can squeeze this in over summers. You can have it attached to different majors. There's a lot of different ways where this can be added, but it's essentially like having a major and a minor. Sure, sure. So many of our listeners are enrollment management and higher ed marketing professionals who specifically work at the graduate level. And I'm curious to know how you think credigrees uh, could or, or should work at the at the master's level in particular. And are there any graduate programs that you know of or perhaps that you're working with that are selling uh, credigrees or something like it successfully? 
Well, I don't think there's a big, I don't think there's a huge difference in, in how a credit degree might work between undergraduate and graduate. Obviously, with grad school, especially if you're talking about the professional schools, you're going to start to see more consolidation and alignment sure, sure. of what those you know, credentials might be, right? So if I'm going to be going through a business school program as an MBA, there's going to be a set of those credentials that are going to make more sense if, you know, so, so I think you'll see that, but I, I, you know, the concept is the same, you know, you're going to leave with an MBA and you're a certified ethical hacker, right? Uh, you know, what, whatever that might be. So, so I think in general, the institutions we've been working with have, uh, have been thinking about deploying a credit degree strategy across both bachelor's degree levels and master's degree levels. And, um, and it, you know, it makes good sense. And many of them, are also planning to uh, market that opportunity to their alumni. So you think about, you know, alumni, mm. you know, you, you graduate, you're now in the workplace for a few years and you realize, geez, you know, I, you know, if I could get my, you know, uh, if I could become a certified financial analyst or financial planner, that would be, you know, uh, a big pay raise over where I am now. So, uh, so they're also thinking about, you know, from the perspective of both lifelong learning as a mission and uh and revenue right in terms of uh you know creating things like subscription-based models of uh, tuition revenue which which are going to be out there uh the credit degree idea works for alumni as well so i think what you'll see though is shifts in terms of what types of industry recognized credentials they're pursuing uh and you know that that'll be a mix but the overall concept is equally attractive and powerful i've got a couple of last questions here for you and the first one is, so if there was one aspect of higher education that you could change, that you had the power to change across the board tomorrow, whether that be a policy change, a cost change, uh, something to do with student experience, perhaps a marketing and recruitment change, what would it be? One, I would make sure that you can't graduate and get a diploma unless you've had some form of a work integrated experience. And the second is that I would start in earnest to find ways to actually reduce the cost of uh, of operations in higher ed. You know, we've we've added a lot of financial aid. We haven't made much effort to reduce actual costs. And so uh, although I know you wanted one answer, I'd start with can't graduate without a work related uh, experience. And um, and then we uh, we start to put some real importance on actual cost reductions where we can save money as opposed to just add more financial aid. I love it. Um, and I actually have two more questions for you. I lied there. Um, the first question, uh, and then I'll, we'll get to we'll get to our final question is, um, what worries you the most about the future of higher education? And, you know, coupled with that, what also excites you the most? Where do you see the greatest opportunity? What worries me the most is that we don't have enough bold, courageous leaders at the helm of our colleges and universities. And I don't say that to be uh, disrespectful at all. You know, I work with a lot of uh, terrific leaders, uh, but but I think in general, we we still need, uh, you know, bold and courageous leadership moves. It's not easy because uh, you've got a lot of stakeholders to please, uh, stakeholders that want to keep things uh, the same, boards of trustees that, uh, you know, I've seen get in the way of very dynamic, visionary college presidents because they were the ones that weren't ready to change. But we don't have enough bold, courageous leaders at the helm. Uh, and what excites me the most is that for the institutions that do have those bold and courageous leaders, they are going to be enormously successful. And you're already seeing this. You look at Arizona State's growth over the last you know, 10 or 15 years that Michael Crow has been there. You look at what Purdue University has done under the leadership of Mitch Daniels. You know, There's a whole bunch of other universities that are doing dynamic things that 
aren't quite on the same profile level and visibility as a you know an ASU and a and a Purdue through the the you know the Michael Crows and the and the Mitch Daniels, but they're out there. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm going to spend, you know, the rest of my career doing is working with those bold and courageous leaders to build, uh, to build this future. I love it. That's, that's very, very, uh, inspiring. And, um, I look, I look forward to watching your, your journey as you do. So my final question is, <laughs> is really for, for our listeners here. And that is if I am an enrollment marketer, I'm working in either enrollment management or again, marketing communications in a higher ed context. Um, and I'm inspired by the work that you're doing. I'm inspired by the work that, that others are doing, um, to essentially reimagine higher education and hold higher education a little bit more accountable to really producing meaningful results in the form of connecting students with, with good jobs, um, ensuring that they're measuring alumni success over periods of time. If I am stuck at an institution where, let's just say, change isn't their forte, how do I go about uh, engaging in conversations with leadership and or what sort of resources exist, maybe even models exist, that I might be able to point my leadership to to inspire at least a conversation around change? Oh, look, it's, it's, that's not easy to do, as we all know. You're you're basically asking a question about you know how do you how do you lead and and in some cases lead without the formal authority that you need to to execute some of the strategies that might be required right and um, so you know it's 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 never going to be simple even if you are the president of the institution right there's uh, there's still, still a lot of hurdles for uh, for that level of leadership but you know there's a couple things we know about higher education uh there's there's comfort and safety in numbers so where you see other institutions doing it if you can identify those use them as a benchmark highlight that example show the success that they've had talk about why it could work at your institution that's always one of those strategies you know finding people who can come in and and you know give the uh you know the second opinion right you got a doctor uh internally who recommends a strategy and then you know you get a you get a third party doctor to give you a second opinion. And, um, you know, that always is something that can add to it. But at the end of the day, you know, this is most of this change is going to come from leaders inside institutions who build, uh, you know, build, build supporters uh, through, you know, old, good old fashioned campaigning. Right. This is about, you know, winning the hearts and minds. It's about making persuasive cases about why we need to head somewhere and I would say, you know, the most important thing that anybody can bring to the table is data from customers and prospective customers. So hmm. the extent that you have evidence that parents want something different for their son or daughter, that the students are asking for something different. Right. If you haven't even gone out and done some of this research or paid attention to the broader national research has been done on it, that's a first you know, place to go, because I have always seen universities be very responsive when they say, something like 72% of our students would blah, 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 if we did the following, <laughs> you know, that is usually a fairly compelling thing to bring to the table. And so, you know, those are, those are simple, simple examples. But, but I think one thing that's going to be pretty evident is that for those of us who want to help higher ed change, it's still going to require a lot of work. And there will always be some detractors. That's something that we're just going to have to get comfortable with. Because we need to make moves. We can't do pilot tests uh, all day long anymore. We've got to make big, bold moves. And to do that, there are always going to be detractors uh, trying to hold back some of those things. So that's just going to be, you know, the cost of doing business in, in institutions that are 
uh, going through massive change and upheaval. And by the way, you know, higher ed is not alone in this. Employers all over the world are struggling with, you know, how they do uh, upskilling and reskilling for their employer employees. They still don't have it figured out. Everybody, including higher ed and employers, is trying to figure out how to build more diverse talent pipelines. No one's really figured that out yet. So uh, so it's not just higher ed that's struggling to to manage through this. It's it's pretty much every organization on the planet. And the point is, let's just get used to it. Let's you know, let's make sure we keep our heads down and, and keep grinding away. But uh, it's going to take some it's going to take some courage. It's going to take some courageous leadership, whether you're the president, the head of enrollment management, uh, the director of marketing at an institution uh, or, quite frankly, uh, you know, a student. Right. So um, we can all we can all influence it in various ways. Well, Brandon, thank you very much for your time and thank you for your bold and courageous leadership. Um, I encourage all of our listeners to follow Brandon on LinkedIn. He's constantly posting really thought-provoking and engaging posts and, and research and, and links to fan- fascinating articles. So thank you for uh, giving us a little bit of your time on this Friday afternoon, Brandon, and I look forward to staying connected in the future. Yeah, thanks, Zach. Appreciate all the good questions and uh, look forward to staying in touch. If you are an enrollment marketer working in marketing and communications or enrollment management and would be willing to be interviewed on the podcast, or if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast, please reach out directly to me at Zach, Z-A-C-H, at Enrollify.org. We sincerely look forward to working with you to make Enrollify the most trusted, go-to digital resource for enrollment marketers out there. Hey friends, just a final thank you to the TargetX team for making today's episode possible. And a quick reminder to check out TargetX's new ebook on five signs of a healthy student journey by heading on over to targetx.com forward slash enrollify. My favorite section is on grit and self-efficacy, which starts on page 17. Check it out today.